Happy Easter to you that are in the room. Those that are tuning in online, uh, welcome to you as well. Uh, this is Resurrection Weekend, right? We are gathered today because the tomb is empty. And because the tomb is empty, all things are possible. And so even with Bobby's story that he's sharing right there, we're seeing how God takes us from death to life. Terrible circumstances into our life to redeeming circumstances. From doubt and despair to salvation and hope. And that's what we're going to talk about today in God's Word. So if you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and find Philippians chapter 3. And let me just say, if you're new to church, uh, we're glad that you're here worshiping with us today. And if you're new to this Christianity thing and new to the Bible, uh, we would love to give you a copy of the Bible as a gift from us to you. And out there in the Welcome Center in between the two TVs, uh, you'll see that there's a rack. And on that rack, there are some Bibles. Love for you to take that and to keep that. And to read it, we believe this is how God speaks to us and shapes us and helps us understand who he is and his deep love for us. And if you are new to the Bible, when we say open up to the book of Philippians, the Bible is one book, but it is made up of 66 different letters or different uh, books within this one book. And one of them is Philippians. And it's in the the right half of the Bible. And we'll be in chapter 3. That's the big number that you'll see as you turn the pages there. And then we'll be in verse 8. Eight, which is the small number. But God's word is what shapes us. It's what tells us who our God is. And so it's important. So every Sunday when we gather together, we walk through God's word and allow it to walk through us as well. And so what we're going to do as we look at Philippians chapter 3 is, is answer that question, kind of how Bobby left us, that challenge of trust and follow. Trust and follow. And Philippians 3 is going to tell us how we are able to trust and follow King Jesus and find that life that Bobby has also found. So let's look starting in verse 8 of Philippians chapter 3. And this is what the word of the Lord says. It says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by all means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Pray with me this morning. Lord, your resurrection is a powerful thing. And this passage tells us the power of the resurrection is what we should see. Your resurrection shows us that you are the master over death, even when it seemed like death had mastered you. You seemingly entered into the grave captive, but you left a conqueror. You were chained by the bonds of death, but they could not hold you down. The tomb was closed, but you stepped forth in liberty. You have the power to rise from the grave and give us newness of life. So Lord, I ask that you would do that today in our lives. Would you do great things through your power and your might? God, would you change our lives in such a way that it would echo into eternity for the glory of your name. Lord, we confess that we need you, which is why we pray now. And let me invite you in this moment of silence 
No matter where you are in your spiritual walk, whether you're a faithful follower of Jesus or whether you're here as a skeptic, not even knowing if you believe in the resurrection, let me just invite you in this moment of silence to pray and ask that God would speak to you today through his word. Pray and ask him to do that now. And then would you pray for me also as we look at the power of the resurrection that I, would make, that I would be able to display that clearly for us to praise God for it. Pray for me now. Lord, would you help us this morning to understand not just the historical event of the resurrection, but Lord, to experience the power of the resurrection. And it's your name we ask this, amen. All right, well today in this room, it's, it is easy for us to sit here and believe in a conservative orthodox view that Jesus did rise from the grave, that there was a moment in time and in space and in history that Jesus got up from the dead and rose from the dead. We can believe that and think that happened in a moment in a period of time. Absolutely. But what we find in this passage is something much more than just a moment in time. Though that moment is true and factually correct, there's a power and experience that comes through the resurrection. And I want us this morning to gaze at the resurrection and see the power of it. What does it mean to, to, to look at the resurrection and have power and impact in my life like it did for Bobby and like it did for others that we're going to see here later as people are baptized. Well, the power of the resurrection is seen in each one of these verses that I read. And the first thing that I want us to grasp this morning is the relational power of the resurrection. The relational power of the resurrection. The resurrection is what allows you and I to have a, a relationship with the creator of the universe. It allows us to talk with him and interact with him because he is alive. And Paul starts where I was reading in verse 8, and he says that there's a surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Knowing. And that word for knowing in the original language that this was written in is an experiential knowledge where you can interact and know and have that person interact with you. And multiple times in this passage, he mentions it. He brings it up again in verse 10, where he talks about knowing Jesus Christ, knowing him. The resurrection is what has allowed us to know him in a personal way. And this is something that our hearts long for. We long to have a relationship with the one who can truly satisfy us. The one who can heal us in our deepest brokenness. And it's because of the resurrection that we can come to him and have this relationship. And this, like I said, is a personal relationship. It's different than maybe it was what we read this and we're like, well, I know about Jesus. No, this is knowing Jesus. And the way I would kind of compare that is it's the difference between knowing somebody in a social media relationship and actually knowing somebody, right? You can be friends with somebody on social media and know about their life. You can know their workout schedule. You can know where they go on vacation. You can know even what they have to eat that day but you don't really know them, right? You don't know them. Now, somebody you know personally that you love, that you share a meal with, that you actually work out together with, 
that you go on vacation with, that's a different relationship, right? And what Paul is talking about right here is knowing Christ in that personal way, that intimate way, that way of I love him and I know that he loves me. This is what Paul's talking about. And Paul uses this, this language to know Christ in a personal way, so much so at the end of verse 8, he says he is my Lord, my Lord. This language glows of the warmth of a direct relationship. Jesus isn't just the Lord. Jesus isn't just a Lord. He is my Lord. He's my Lord. He has saved me. You see, God is not some seemingly distant, meditating mystic on a foreign mountainside, far, far away, or God is not some abstract deity out there. No, our God is a personal God who seeks us out like a widow searches and seeks for a lost coin or a father who looks for a lost son. Jesus is not just a Lord. He is our Lord if you believe in him. Now, if you are new to this Christianity thing, or even if you've been around it for a while, this might sound really weird to think that Jesus is someone that we could have a relationship with. Because in our minds, we think that Jesus is somebody that just existed centuries ago and now is dead. And that's weird to think about a relationship with a dead person. That's why death is so hard for us, because we miss that relationship with people, right? But that's why the resurrection has this relational power because Jesus isn't in the grave. Jesus isn't dead. He is alive. So when we pray, we're not praying to some dead old man centuries ago. We're praying to the living king who is alive and hears our prayers, who sees our lives, who cares for us. And it's because of the resurrection that we have hope in moments like these. And this is the beauty of what the resurrection and the power of the resurrection does, it gives us a relationship with him because he is not dead, he is alive. And so we can talk to a person who's alive, right? We can interact with them because he is a living God. Now you might ask the question this morning, well, why do I wanna know him? Why do I wanna interact with this risen king that you're talking about? Well, the author of Philippians, the apostle Paul tells us in verse eight, because there is a surpassing worth. Do you see that in verse eight? There is a surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. That word for surpassing worth means that there is a super thing. That's literally how it should be translated. It's a hyper echo. That's what the Greek word means. It's a super thing. It is so brilliant. It goes beyond all things. And Paul says, I have seen something that is worthy of my life. It's worthy of everything. It is, has more worth than anything this world has to offer. It has a surpassing worth. And so, yes, I would plead with you to come to Jesus because he is worthy of your life. I, I would plead with you to come to Jesus because he is worthy of your life. He has a surpassing worth. He is greater than all things. And so we can look and say, Maybe my, my job or my pedigree is where my life is found, where my identity is found. Jesus is better. Well, maybe it's my marriage or my kids that I find my worth in. Jesus' worth is far greater than that. He's greater than all these things. And Paul sees it, and so he looks at everything else in his life, and he calls it rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. And that's what it says in verse 8. I suffer the loss of all things and count them as 
rubbish. Now we dial that back just a little bit in our English translation, but that word in the original language is excrement. It's dung. He's saying, as I look at my life, and I look at the great surpassing worth of Christ, everything else I have in my life, all the good things, all the blessing, it is as dung as compared to Jesus Christ. Because that's how much he's worthy. That's how far and away he has the surpassing worth. He looks at everything else and he's like, it's rubbish. It's rubbish. My pedigree my status, my bank account, my professional career, my academic career, all these things are as rubbish compared to knowing Jesus Christ. Now, listen to me this morning. He's not saying that none of these things matter. He's not saying don't pursue a career or, or an academic career or to have a family. But what he's saying is comparatively, comparatively, these things don't hold a candle to the worth of knowing Jesus. That he is far greater than anything else we would pursue in our lives. Another way for us to think about it is when the sun comes out, it's not the only star in the sky. At nighttime, when the, the sun, we can't see it, we look and we see all these stars in the sky. And they're beautiful stars, right? But in the daytime, as the sun comes out, that star, the sun, is so much brighter, you can't see the other stars in the sky. They're still there. You realize all those stars that we see at night are still there during the daytime. But when the sun comes out, it's got this surpassing brightness that... Everything else dims in comparison. And that is what Paul's saying. Not that there's no other stars in the sky, but that compared to knowing Jesus, everything else pales in comparison. Because something greater has come. Something greater has come. And if we slow down and we think about this for a moment, we slow down and think about the truth that Christ has a surpassing worth and he is better than all things. We know in our hearts this to be true. If we just sit in the silence of, of our lives for a moment, we realize that our souls will not be satisfied with temporal things. And they might give us a little spark in the heart for a minute, but they can't satisfy us to the utmost. And Jesus, when he shows up and his surpassing worth and we come to know him, we look at everything else and it's rubbish and we find our hearts satisfied in, our, in him. You see, our goal is to look to Christ and to know him. The ultimate goal of Christianity is not forgiveness, though that is a piece of it. It's knowing him. We'll get it to it in a few weeks, but Jesus even says, this is eternal life that you know me. That's what he says in John 17, verse 3. It's knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. So as a point of application with this, church family, let's make knowing Jesus the ultimate ambition for our lives. The ultimate ambition to our lives. May it be the thing that we glory in over anything else in our life. May it be a place where we place our identity. May it be a place that we place our highest ambition in him. May everything else in our lives be eclipsed by the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. 
And this is different than what the world will tell us, or even sometimes what we find in our own heart. You see, a religious person, not a Christian, but a religious person will say, I want to do these things in order that God would bless all the stuff in my life. So I'm going to read my Bible, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to come to church to check these boxes off so that Jesus gives me my pedigree. He gives me my, my job status I want. He gives me the money I want. But this is saying a, a Christian, a faithful follower of God, would look and say, even if I don't have any of those things, but I have Christ, I have more than enough. He is more than enough for me. Christians look at Jesus and love him for his surpassing worth, which comes to rescue and to save us. And that's the next thing that we see about the power of the resurrection, the saving power, the saving power of his resurrection. We find this in verse 9. Verse 9 just drips with the saving power of the resurrection. And it starts in this verse where it says we are found in Jesus. Being found in him. In order to be found, you first have to be lost, right? Paul is saying when he makes a statement, I am now found in him, is that I was once lost. And this found word is a passive statement. What that means is that Christ found him. And placed him in him. You see, we sit here and we, we think about ultimately Easter egg hunts when it comes to Easter. And Paul is saying, hey, there is an Easter egg hunt. For me, for a long time, I was pursuing all of these different things in my life. I was trying to find my, my purpose and my meaning and my worth in all these different areas. But we found that Christ is greater. And you know what? It wasn't me ultimately finding Christ. I am found in him. Not because we were seeking him out, but because God came and sought us out. We might be hunting for eggs, but Christ has been seeking and hunting for us because he loves us. God's word even says that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And this is what Jesus does. And it's funny, when, we, when we're lost oftentimes, I, I can think of multiple times in my life, we tend to have the same response when we're lost somewhere. I was lost years ago at a disaster relief um, down after Katrina happened and the power wasn't up and it was getting dark there and we're lost. We have no idea where we're going. We're in a group of, of people in this van and, and we're just driving faster. If we can just go faster, we don't even know where we're going, but we're going to try to get out of the city. If we can go faster, then we'll get to our destination. But we don't know where we're going. We don't know where we're going, right? Or, or I've been, as a, as a kid, worried and, and nervous, like, oh my goodness, where are my parents? I have no idea where they are. And so you, you, you run around and you kind of look like you know where you're going and what's going on, but you really have no idea what you're doing. And what Paul is saying in this passage to us is that's what he did for a long time. He knew he was lost before Christ found him. He knew that he was lost. And so what he did is he tried to drive faster in a direction that he had no idea where he was going. He tried to look around so the world would look at him and say, well, that man knows what he's doing when he had no idea how to find God. In verses 5, 6, and 7, which I want to read to us, and you'll see on the screen, this is how Paul is trying to find Christ, trying to find God. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day from the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law. I was a Pharisee, and as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Whatever gain I had, it counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. What he's saying in these few verses right here is, 
This is how I was trying to find God. This is how I was trying to find salvation. And each one of those, I want to kind of bring out and put it in our practical day understanding. When he says right here that I was circumcised of the eighth day, that's a Jewish ritual that they would do. And the eighth day was the right time to do it. And some of us, even today, we look and we're like, I've got the right ceremony. That's what Paul's saying in this. I've got the right ceremony. You know, I think back at this time and, and I had the right ceremony. I, I got baptized at this point in my life. I was confirmed at this point in my life. I became a part of the, the, the right community. But Paul's saying right here, the, the right ceremony? Without first knowing Christ, there's no saving power in it. There's no saving power in it. These people that you're going to see get baptized today aren't getting baptized to like finish their faith. Now they're firm and now they're, they're saved. No, it's because they are saved in Jesus Christ and they've been found by him that they now proclaim to all of us that we have been saved. He also says that I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. What is that about? Who is Benjamin? That was one of the, the best tribes to be a part of at this time for the Jewish people. And what he's saying in this moment is, I was a part of the right family. I had the right family. Everybody would look and be like, that, that guy comes from good stock. Paul's like, I did, right? I had the right family. But the reality is, your family does not mean you're saved. It's through the power of the resurrection that we're saved. And we've got to understand this truth that, that God does not have grandchildren. God has children. Any who believes in him is saved and is a child of God. So if you're sitting here today and be like, well, my parents are good people, so I must be saved. My brother or my sister, like, they, they know and they love and they follow Jesus, and so I must be a believer too, like, just by default, right? That's not how Christianity works. That's not how the gospel works. The gospel demands response. And so, yes, being in a Christian family is great. It's a good thing, but it does not mean that you're a Christian. You have to choose to follow Christ. So Paul's like, it's not because I came from the right family that I've been found by Christ. He even says that I was a Pharisee. He's like, I had the right theology. I had all the orthodox beliefs. I believed and taking it to our term today, like, I believe that the resurrection happened. But yet he didn't believe in the power of the resurrection. He was banking on his knowledge and that his knowledge would save him. But even right theology can't save. In the book of James in the Bible, it says that the demons know and believe and tremble. They believe. They, they believe that Jesus rose from the grave. Yeah, absolutely. But they're not saved. Because they haven't looked to Jesus as Lord and submitted their life to him as Lord. Paul even goes on to say, I had zeal. So much zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. What does that mean? What he's saying is I had the right level of passion. I had intensity for God. I was there every week. I did all the, the boxes. I checked every one of them. And if you looked at my life, you would say, that's a blameless man. It's a blameless man. You could compare me to all these other people and you would say, that's a good person. And Paul even says, even that, even in that, I couldn't be saved. It's through the power of the resurrection that he is now found in Christ Jesus. And that's what he tells us in verse nine. Not having righteousness of my own. Not having righteousness of my own, but through faith in Christ. That's where our righteousness is found. 
It's found in him. And in verse 9, it says it's righteousness from God. This highlights it's a gift. It's not works-based. It's a gift of grace that we believe not in our works, but in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is where our hope comes from. That's where our salvation comes from. That we believe that Christ died on the cross for our sin in our place. And somehow, someway, that counted for me. And he rose from the grave showing that he had defeated my sin and death itself. That is the hope and the power of the resurrection. That is the saving power of the resurrection. And so church, let us rejoice in the saving power of the resurrection. Let us receive the saving power of the resurrection, not just in head, but in heart. Jesus was delivered from the tomb. And because he was delivered from the tomb, we are delivered from our judgment. We are justified now. And therefore being justified in our faith, we have peace with God. And so may that deep peace, that profound serenity of God fall on our hearts that we would remember Jesus and his resurrection and the power of the resurrection. And may we receive it for the first time today or may we rejoice in it because we have received it years ago. Jesus, through the power of the resurrection, doesn't just allow us to know him, doesn't just allow, allow us to find salvation, we also see the life-changing power of the resurrection in verse 10. In verse 10, he says, becoming like him in his death. What does that mean? Becoming like him in his death. That's showing a change that happens when Christ saves us. When we come to know him, we become like him in his death. Now, what does that mean tangibly? Well, those of you that know the story of when Christ was going to the cross... He first goes to the, the Garden of Gethsemane and he kneels down and he's praying. He's praying to God the Father in heaven. And when he prays, what he says is, is there any way that this cup can pass from me? This cup of wrath and judgment, is there any way possible? And what Jesus is asking in the garden that day is what we ask today. There's gotta be another way to salvation. There's gotta be another way. Like if we can just be good people, that's where salvation is found. Or if we can have the right ceremony, that's where salvation is found. Is there any other way that we can find salvation apart from Christ? That's what Jesus is praying in the garden that day. Is there any other way that this cup can pass from me? But then he says, but not my will, but your will be done. And there was no other way that we could be saved. Which is why Jesus went to the cross. And he went to the cross laying down his will and allowing the Father's will to be done. And so when we see here, we're becoming like him in his death. What that means is we're laying down our will and our way and we're saying, Jesus, you are Lord. You are the king of all creation. And if you ask me to do something, I will do it because you are Lord. It's not, I'm gonna take a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of what I want, try to co-mingle them together. That's not where salvation is found. No, it's found in the life-changing power of the resurrection where we say, I will lay my will down and I will pick up your will and your way. That's the beauty and the power of the resurrection. In Romans chapter 6, it'll kind of explain it in a deeper way for we can understand this idea of becoming like him in his death. In Romans 6 verse 4, it says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. What he's saying right there is that when we come to Christ, 
our will and our way, we let it die. We let it go. And then we are buried with him just as he died on the cross to his will and his way. And he went into the tomb and then he rose in the newness of life. And that's what it says at the end, that we might too walk in the newness of life. That's the image and the picture you get when we see baptisms today. These people step into the water and they're like, it's not my will, it's his will. It's not my way, it's his way. So I will listen to God's word and I will obey. And so I am dying to my will and my way. I'm going under the water and I'm coming forth raised in the newness of life, just like Christ was raised from the grave in newness of life. No longer having pain or suffering, no longer having stress and anxiety. He is freed of all of those things through the power of the resurrection. You see, the power of the resurrection transforms. It changes. It changes even our lives today. It changes dead things to life. You see, in a very practical way, what's being offered to us through the power of the resurrection is that things in our life that we look at as dead can be made new and alive. You see, what the power of the resurrection does is practically, through the power of the resurrection, it takes the death of bitterness that's in our hearts and can change it and turn to forgiveness. The power of the resurrection will change our lives by changing the decay of self-centeredness and it will transform it to a compassion, generous heart. This is what the power of the resurrection does. It can take the rotting anxiety in our hearts and transform it to a deep hope in the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus and the very first resurrection from the dead, the glorious resurrection of our King, he changed things. And now today he's still moving in that way. He's still changing in our lives. If we'll come to him, he will change us. So may we believe in the changing power of the resurrection. May we believe in the changing power of the resurrection. And I would encourage you, I'd plead with you, please believe in the changing power of the resurrection. Because some of you right here, right now are thinking, man, there's no way that this area of my life can change. There's no way. There's no way that God can fix my life. It's too broken. I'm too far gone. Maybe some of y'all felt just like Bobby did where he's like, I looked at my life and I thought, God, I can run it better. And now I sit here years later and realize I haven't. I can't go back to him. God can't change that. Yes, he can. The power of the resurrection shows that. Some of us sit here and we're like, oh my goodness, there's no way that God can fix my marriage. There's too much junk in my life. There's too much junk in my spouse's life. There's no way that God can fix my marriage. And it's us taking our eyes off the power of the resurrection and looking at ourselves. And if you are looking at yourself to fix all these things in your life, then it will fail. It will fail. But if Christ is risen from the grave, then all things are possible. All things are possible. And so may we believe in the changing power of the resurrection and allow it to change our lives to the glory of his name. And lastly, quickly, the fourth thing I want us to see about the power of the resurrection is the comforting power of the resurrection. The comforting power of the resurrection. We see this in verse 10 and in verse 11. There's two things that Paul says that should give us comfort for the bitter experiences that we've had in life. First, in verse 10, it says we will share in his suffering. We'll share in his suffering. Some of you are like, there's no comfort in that. What are you telling me? I'm going to suffer? We all suffer. Absolutely. Now, the comfort that we have in verse 10, when it tells us that we'll share the suffering of Christ, 
There's comfort in that because it reminds us that Jesus is well aware of our fears and our pain and our suffering. He knows the tears that we have shed. He knows it. We share in his suffering. He's experienced it. We will have troubles in our life. Jesus even promised us that. We'll be persecuted. We'll be mistreated. It'll be painful to love people who are hard to love. It'll be a struggle to be a bright light in a dark world. But Jesus gets all of that. We have a merciful high priest, a, a faithful friend who understands the pain and can empathize with us and sympathize with us. He understands how we feel in our suffering and our loss because he has experienced it as well. But it's through the power of the resurrection that he can do far more than sympathize and empathize with us. He can redeem and fix. He can bring comfort to the broken things in this world. And that's what we find is the second thing that comforts us. In verse 11, Paul says, I look forward. I look forward to attaining the resurrection from the dead. Attaining the resurrection from the dead. What Paul is saying here is, I know there's gonna be suffering and pain in my life. And Jesus knows that pain. And so there is comfort that he cares for me through the midst of that. But he will not leave us in our suffering and our fears and in our tears. He will not do it. There is coming a day when Jesus will come back and he will raise us from the grave. Those who have believed in him are raised to life and all those broken, sad things of this world will be fixed, fixed in him. And Paul's like, that's where my hope rests. That's where my eyes lie, that one day I will attain the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection that Christ had from the dead, we will experience too. And all these broken things in the world, Christ will fix. That's what we are celebrating at Easter. We realize that we are Easter people, that we are Easter people living in a Good Friday world. We realize that. We realize that there's a resurrection and there's a king coming again, but until he comes again, we're on a Good Friday suffering day. But we know that there's a hope that the resurrection, the ultimate resurrection of all who believe would, would come to him, and there we will celebrate, there we will praise, there our life will be found, which is why Jesus can say in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection. And I am the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. That's where Paul's eyes are fixed. That's where his comfort comes from. Not even just for himself, but for past people who faithfully believed in Jesus. They too will be resurrected. And we have comfort that we will see them one day and praise Jesus Christ alongside him. So church family, the last point of application is this. Let us be consoled by the reality of the resurrection. Let us be comforted by the truths of the resurrection. Jesus understands our suffering, but the resurrection is proof that he will not leave us in our suffering. Now, before we do baptisms, I want to ask you the question, do you know, do you know the power of the resurrection? Not just the facts, not just the historical event, but do you know the power of the resurrection. If not, I would encourage you today to look to Christ, to know him, know the saving power of the resurrection. See him change your life and give you hope, yes, for today, but also for all of eternity. Would you look to him today and believe? Bow your heads with me. If you say, I want to know him, 
and I want to know the power of his resurrection, then I would invite you today to respond to the gospel. The gospel demands response. Pray admitting your need for that personal relationship with him. That your sin has separated you from God and you need him through the power of the resurrection to bridge that gap. Pray admitting your need for a savior. And second, believe that he can save you from your sins. And he did that through his work on the cross. Pray and say that, God, I believe that you died for me in my place. And then last, that you would confess him as Lord. And not just the Lord, but your Lord. He wants to save and redeem you. Let him be the God of your eternal life, but also your everyday life, for he is Lord. Father God, we thank you now. We thank you for the grace, the goodness, the might, and the power of the resurrection. And we ask that we would live in that truth. And as we look at these baptisms today and we see people that are saying, I've gone from death to life because of the power of the resurrection, may we celebrate as a church that we are confessing we believe that to be true, that you have the power to create a relationship. You have the power to change and to save. And we're thankful for what you've done in their lives and the others that will baptize next service. For you are the gospel-changing life-changing, redeeming God. And we love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Church family, let's stand and let's sing to Jesus now.